you know, yes, the toxic workplaces can exist, but it can be different and you can make the change. What I saw was that not many people, not many supervisors have an image of what they're aiming for. You know what? You've probably seen all the stuff about habits, right? That you need to be moving towards something new rather than just away from something. And I didn't see that in the market. And that was the genesis of the book. Hi, everyone. I'm Tracy O'Rourke. And I'm Elizabeth Swan. And we're from the Just In Time Cafe and welcome to our podcast. At the cafe, we wrestle with tough questions. We talk to thought leaders. We discuss great books and we get insights from Lean Six Sigma practitioners. And we let you in on helpful apps. We bring you the news and challenge the status quo so you can build your problem solving muscles. So Elizabeth, what is on the menu today at the cafe? <laughs> Today's highlight is our interview with Hugh Alley, author of Becoming the Supervisor, Achieving Your Company's Mission and Building Your Team. Hugh is going to give us his insights on how organizations tap our innate love of doing worthwhile work. Next up, it's an app that turns even us scribblers into artists. And for Q&A, we asked our community how they avoid the uh, crushing the spirits of others when they're feeling overwhelmed with frustration. It's still a great day at the Trace at the cafe, Absolutely. Tracy. <laughs> Up next, it's hot apps. Today's app has the power to turn us all into artists, maybe without the art school. I don't know. I think maybe it is the digital art school. Yes, the app is called Canva. It's a graphic design platform. It's used to create social media graphics, presentations, posters, documents, and other visual content. The app includes templates for users to use. It's free. And you can also have paid subscriptions like Canva Pro. And Elizabeth, I really like it because it makes it really easy to create infographics, logos, and icons for course development and for social media posts. We've even uploaded our brand colors, as you know, and we can use any colors we want for most creations. And really, this can help if anyone wants to match company colors for PowerPoint presentations or social media or other when you're developing content like that. So I really like it. It's made it really easy to look professional <laughs> and be creative at the same time. What did you discover about Canva, Elizabeth? Don't we all want to look professional, Tracy? <laughs> Just seems like a personal goal, you know, we should all yeah. have. So this thing's been a revelation for both of us. And I recently used it to create a graphic to go with your Gemba Walk webinar. So I uploaded a photo of you. I found a pair of boots in their photo library, I gave you a little speech bubble and voila, your boots were made for gimbal walking. <laughs> I loved it. You know, uh, our brand colors are right there. Like you said, I can put the graphics in separate folders. So it allows you to organize it. There's some for webinar banners, some for LinkedIn posts. It's actually got templates to guide you on the right sizes for images on social media like what does Facebook want? What does YouTube want? What does Instagram want? You know, whatever. And they've got ready-made templates, like you said, infographics, flyers. There's a huge list there. You mentioned that there's some pricing options. So I'm just going to go over those for people. There's a free option. So it's easy to just try this out for nothing. You, it gives you five gigabytes of storage space for your designs. You get limited access to their templates, photos, and images. You can see other images, but they'll have the tag pro on them, which means only pro members have access to certain images. The next option is pro subscription, like you mentioned, that's 119 a year. And this one gives you access to over a hundred million templates, graphics, and photos, which is a lot. <laughs> I didn't realize that. It's got a hundred gigabytes of storage, so way more than five. It also gives you access to features and capabilities that are not in the free version. And my guess is that most people who use it 
are opting for the pro subscription. You get you get a feel pretty quickly for how much more you're going to get with uh, with the pro subscription. You also mentioned, or actually, I'm going to mention <laughs> the enterprise subscription, and that is 150 a year, which I wasn't really aware of until I dug into this. And this is built for work teams, and it's got unlimited cloud storage for all your designs and folders full of your work. You get tech support, didn't know about that. And there's lots more controls for what people can access and change. So it gives you a little more control over mass usage. Uh, and it's like changed our little world, turned us into professionals, Tracy. <laughs> Never knew we could look so professional. <laughs> We'll include the link to Canva on the podcast post on our website so you can check it out. I'm Elizabeth Swan, and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. In a short while, you get to hear our interview with Hugh Alley. Next up is a question we pose to our community. How do you react appropriately when you are frustrated with somebody? This question stems from a very human condition. You're speaking with someone and they are not aware of something that you assume that they should know. And maybe you sent them an email about it. Maybe you sent 10 emails, but for some reason, they still do not know it. And what you want to say is, are you kidding me? You know, and then what? The person definitely, well, may sense your frustration. Uh, uh, Depends on what kind of a poker face you got. And then they get defensive. They might feel bad. Or they might be oblivious to your disappointment and just move on. So what is the opportunity? You know, they might be distracted. They might be preoccupied with something they see as more important than what you're talking about. They might be overwhelmed. So how do you bring them along? What's the right response when what you want to say is, really? You know, scorn is not a great motivator and it's definitely not helpful. How about you, Tracy? You know, it's interesting. I have tremendous empathy for people who ask for clarity in a kind way, because mostly I've been that person. I've been so distracted at times where I've got a lot on my plate and, you know, I tend to skim my emails and sometimes I miss some important detail, especially when I'm in relentless prioritization mode, like, okay, I'm focused on this and that's it. That's all I'm going to do. But then I'm trying to, you know, I sometimes check an email but I, I will say that I have been getting a little frustrated when I'm in virtual classroom and I have 20 students who will ask me the same question three or four times. And then I know that they weren't listening. So that is frustrating. And I just have to take a deep breath because I know it's a challenge to stay focused virtually. There's more distractions online than in person. But I just take a deep breath. <laughs> That's all I can do. And I try to repeat myself. Or I might say very kindly, and what is the answer to that question, class? <laughs> <laughs> Which is great because it's a good learning technique. And you have a nice outlet for the frustration you're feeling because it's the fifth time that you've had to explain that. So now over to you, class, you start teaching, which is a good exactly. delegation, I think. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's why I put this question out there uh, to find out what works best for others. And I'm going to relay to you some of what we discovered from our community. Uh, Jennifer Ayers, the executive director of the Northwest High Performance Enterprise Consortium, uh, related it to Kata. And for those of you who have not heard of it, Kata is the practice of scientific thinking. Mike Rother developed it based on the Toyota production system. So being a Kata practitioner makes Jennifer turn toward the process versus the person. And she asks herself, why is there a gap between what I expect them to know and what they know? What is the obstacle? What should I try differently next time? And what do I expect to happen? And it's a great antidote for her to doing the same thing, expecting different results. I love that. So that was a great one. And then uh, today's guest, Hugh Alley, also chimed in. He had a couple of thoughts. He said, one is about overload. So one time for fun, he tracked the number of policy changes that came to him as a manager for implementation in a large administrative law organization. And he counted 60 in a month, three in a day. And each one was well-intended and justifiable. 
but he couldn't possibly roll all those out to his staff because they had work to do. The second thing he considers is his reaction. Um, he finds the question, fact, opinion, or guess, very helpful. So does our assessment of their reaction rely on facts we know, our opinion, which is based on our own singular take, or guesses in which our brain is just filling in the blanks before we even realize it? And most of the time he discovered his assessment is based on opinions and guesses. So those were great. Just looking at, is it reasonable what we're expecting? And then uh, what am I basing my assumption on? Another great one came from Lily Angelosi. She's the transformational healthcare lead at UC San Diego Health, also a guest of the podcast. She observes this in her communication with various teams. So her care providers, frontline clinicians, night shifts, weekenders, break nurses, uh, and travelers don't always receive and discuss their emails and respond to them at the same speed of the administrative teams, which makes total sense. So instead of, quote, I sent the email 10 days ago, <laughs> end quote, Lily and her team go to the Gemba, right? So they go to where the work is happening and they see their working environment. So instead of emails, she considers maybe she should use digital signage in the physician or the nurse lounges. Maybe she should use soft reminders at the morning or the handoff huddles. And one phrase she used that I really love, she said, you need to see what their lives look like and understand, quote, the rocks in their shoes. Have you heard that before? Well, I've heard pebbles in their shoes. Um, and I think it's a great image because she's working on building empathy, right? Yeah. yeah. Now that was a beautiful one. And this came up, another great line came from Chris Burnham, Senior Lean Strategy Director at Kinexus, uh, Kinexus and also uh, host of the Lean Leadership Podcast. He pointed out that people key their emotions on what they perceive as your emotional state. So when you get frustrated, they may become frustrated. When you seem frantic, they become more frantic. And when you become calm, and practice humble inquiry, right? Good things come out of that. He said, we need to be an emotional thermostat. Isn't that a great phrase? That is a great phrase. And, you know, as you were talking about that, I remember, you know, going to a party at someone's house and the host was clearly stressed out about having people over. And, you know, it just kills the party mode. <laughs> You're just like, do you need help? You want me to help you? You know, so it's creating anxiety. So I totally get this idea of, you know, people, they, they capitalize on that. You're making me suddenly reflect on parties that I've probably killed. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta remember this. I'm an emotional party thermostat. That's another job. It's not just at work, but he's pointing out that, you know, we control how we react to a set of circumstances and he's right. Oh. And lastly, say it again. Yep, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. And lastly, uh, Manuel Sastra, manager of MES delivery at Bristol Myers Squibb, brought up the concept of the quote unquote curse of knowledge, which is a great phrase. And that comes from an article by Chip and Dan Heath, authors you and I love. Uh, and it relates to the possibility that we may not be communicating as effectively as we think we are. And because we assume we are good communicators, uh, the antidote is to ask more questions. So it's back to that kata concept. It's a way of bridging the gap between what we know and what we want others to know. But it was that, that curse of knowledge. We think we're good communicators, but we may not you know, be as effective as, as we are. That's just great. So really rich conversation. I love our problem solving community. I cannot wait to reach out to them every Tuesday. I love it too. I love seeing your posts and we get, you get lots of activity on your posts and it's really fun reading what people have to say to those very thought provoking questions you put out there. I'm Tracy O'Rourke, and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. We host these monthly, so you can go to jitcafe.com and go to our podcast page. That's J-I-T 
cafe.com. Coming up next, it's our featured guest, Hugh Alley. Elizabeth, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Hugh? I'd be delighted. Hugh Alley thinks work ought to be good. Good for the body, good for the soul, and good for the company. He spent over 20 years as a frontline leader or supporting frontline leaders in a variety of managerial roles. He achieved measurable performance improvements in every role. He was co-owner and operations manager of a manufacturing firm for three and a half years. Through his company, First Line Training, Hugh has taught core leadership skills to over a thousand people. Hugh's first book, Becoming the Supervisor, Achieving Your Company's Mission and Building Your Team, is about how to develop the core skills of supervisors. And it's told as the story of a young supervisor learning the job. Hugh's an industrial engineer, University of Waterloo. He has a graduate degree from Cornell and Vancouver School of Theology. He has taught at three Vancouver area schools, UBC, SFU, and BCIT. Hugh writes and presents frequently to a wide range of industry associations, including the Training with an Industry Summit, Catacon, and others on topics related to supervisor skills. Toyota Kata, project management, quality, risk management, and lean principles. He lives in Burnaby, Canada with his wife. Hello, Hugh. Welcome to the cafe. Hi, Hi Hugh. Elizabeth. Hi, Tracy. Um, and uh, what is the gorgeous scene behind you? This is a beach in a national park called Guayanas off the coast of British Columbia. So it's about 100 miles offshore. Uh, and it's an archipelago of 140 islands. And I kayaked there a couple of summers ago. Yeah, wow. Tracy, I told you we're going to we're meeting at his house to go kayaking in like a week. So just get ready for it. us. Darn, we should have done this podcast live in a coffee shop. Uh, so, Hugh, I'm so psyched you came on. Um, I'm dying to hear about your book. And I wanted to just relay a great quote uh, that's early on in your book from one of your mentors that kind of spoke to me or hit me uh, that I want to share. And that is, it quote, if we as bosses treat our people as human beings, they are less likely to go home and kick the cat or anyone else. Uh, and I wanted to know from you, I get the sense of just leadership responsibility is part of what drove you, you know, to, to write this. And I wanted to know, can you tell us what was the trigger for you to pull this book together, to put it into words? I, there were two experiences that really drove it for me. Uh, one was very early in my career, and I worked in a steel mill, and I've never seen such a toxic workplace. Uh, actually watched the general manager screaming at his supervisors and the supervisors screaming right back and the same between the supervisors and the crews. And not surprisingly, the company was losing a lot of money. And unfortunately, I was part of the management team that wound up shutting it down. And so I watched 600 people go out of work. Mm. And I, I never wanted to, I mean, I learned a ton, but I never wanted to go through that again. Uh, and it, it's in the reflection afterwards, thinking back on what was going on. I realized that the people I was watching simply didn't have the leadership skills they needed to be in a supervisory role. Um, so fast forward 20 plus years, and I got invited to move in or join a, a friend, it, the, the guy who talked about the kick the cat. Um, he invited me to uh, be his operations manager. And I walked into the facility and you know how your spidey sense goes up when you go into some places? That's what happened. And, and I could very quickly understand, realize that there was, it wasn't as extreme, but it was a problem. 
And I was going to have to deal with how do I improve the skills of these frontline leaders uh, in order to have everyone in the organization do what needed to get done. Uh, and over the next three and a half years, we really turned that place around from a culture perspective, performance perspective. And it was that experience that, you know, yes, the toxic workplaces can exist, but it can be different and you can make the change. What I saw was that not many people, not many supervisors have an image of what they're aiming for. You know, you've probably seen all the stuff about habits, right? That you need to be moving towards something new rather than just away from something. And I didn't see that in the market. And that was the genesis of the book. Did you feel that once they had something to look forward to, that that motivated them to change? Or do you think there was something bigger? Well, of course, the people in that experience didn't have the book, so they didn't have that. <laughs> um, but I, it's been really interesting, Tracy. I've had a number of people get in touch with me after, since the book has come out and sit, tell me, you know, I've read your book and it's been a motivation for me to completely rethink how I develop my supervisors. Uh, which was a perspective I hadn't really considered when I was writing it. I was more thinking about it for the supervisors rather than the managers. Mm -hmm. And well, what, go ahead, Tracy. Go ahead. No, you go, you go, Elizabeth. Well, I was just thinking, you know, what do you consider the core skills for supervisors? I think there are five. Uh, so you need to be able to instruct. You need to be able to foster performance. You need to be able to improve methods. You need to be able to set priorities and you need to be able to listen. That sounds so simple. Yeah. <laughs> check, uh, check, check, wow, check. That's, that's it. Okay. Wow. We're done. <laughs> no, just, I mean, I mean, all of those. As you know, I mean, there are layers on layers and layers of those. But what I've observed is that at the front line, you don't have to be a superstar on any of them. You just have to be capable. And, and that to me is really encouraging because then, then you can develop people and, and they don't have to show up fully formed and perfect, right? Well, you talk a lot about TWI in the book yep. and not a lot of people know th what that's all about. Could you tell them a little bit about our audience about TWI and why it's important and how it benefits supervisors? Sure. Uh, so the training within industry approach was developed during the Second World War when they were... Uh, looking around and realizing that the biggest shortcoming they had was supervisors because all the skilled people had enlisted. And so you were left with uh, people supervising who didn't have much more experience than the people they were overseeing. In, during the Second World War, that was the first time you had large numbers of women and African-Americans coming into industrial settings. And so you'd have people like supervising people building ships who'd only ever seen their first ship four months before. <laughs> and so they developed an approach to instructing that was repeatable and easily teachable. And it had a huge impact. Over the course of the war, they trained over 2 million supervisors. And the results were remarkable. Typically, 25% improvements in production and productivity, 
big reduces in scrap, in grievances, uh, and it made a huge difference for a lot of the, com the companies that used it. And when you think about, uh, you know, the, the, you've given us those five core skills, which as you said, there's layers upon layers upon layers. Do you have some favorite go-to tools for supervisors? I tend to start with one of two things, either job relations or job instruction. So the, the three core uh, programs within the TWI world were job instruction, which is how do you teach people, and job relations, which is how do you foster performance, and job methods, which is how do you make things work better. And I start with job instruction or job relations, and it depends on sort of how, how toxic or good the workplace is. Uh, so in my case, I started with job relations because it was a toxic workplace and we needed to change the way people related to each other. But I've also been in organizations where uh, it's the, the obvious place to start is with job instruction because their presenting big problem is that they can't scale up fast enough in a seasonal business or something like that. So you, you do have to, I, there's not a hard and fast rule, I don't think. No, but you've entered some terms that are helpful and, and give kind of the breadth of what's underneath this training or this approach with supervisors. And I'm just wondering, you gave examples of walking, you know, walking into the, in some ways, when you get that description of the, the manager yelling at the supervisors and the supervisors yelling back, um, I thought, well, that sounds horrible, but at least they're empowered to yell. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's kind of a, a bad uh, plus on that one. But then when you talk about now one of your go-tos is job relations, can you give an example on the flip side? Like where you introduce, like just this, a, a piece of what can happen using job relations to, you know, move away from that kind of an environment. Sure. Sure. Um, so I think of a lead that I had um, and he was a guy six, four, and he would have been 250 to 75. He was a big guy. And he was a bit of a hothead. And he was actually still in the process of going through job relations and saw out of the corner of his eye on the other side of the shop, one of his guys doing something that he thought was the wrong thing. And he got up and he was moving. And he was halfway across when he said he realized that, wait a minute, this is exactly what the class is about. And he thought, okay, what am I supposed to do? And step one of job relations is get the facts. By the time he got to the worker, he had calmed down, discovered that there really was a problem that the guy was trying to address, dealt with it, and went back to his his workplace and everything just rolled right along. But if he had let his normal practice go, he there would have been a shouting match and there would have been chatter throughout the plant for the rest of the afternoon. And that ability to stop and take stock and say, hmm, I wonder what's actually going on. Let me check the facts made a huge difference. Did you say the guy was six, five? Yeah. Can you imagine if some guy six, five was walking towards you, like very upset and you're just like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the guy that he was going to was one of these guys that's about five foot five and 135 pounds. Right. <laughs> Yes. So, so Hugh, obviously you've written a book specific to supervisors. Do you feel like 
that level of management more than other levels is the most critical? What are your thoughts? And rather than instead of directors or managers, why focus on supervisors in particular? I know that that's part of TWI and that's the, that's the goal is supervisors, but is that where you're seeing the gap in your work as well? Oh yeah, because think about it. If you want to make improvements or implement a new policy or improve quality or reduce lead time or improve the safety, where does it go? It has to go through that frontline leader. All those things that you might want to get done in your facility or your operation, or, you know, and it can be factories, but it can also be offices too, right? And, but if you want to get those kinds of changes done, it's your frontline leaders that are going to make it happen. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the surveys that are around indicate that something like 60% of supervisors have never had any training at all. Yes. Uh, and the training that they have had has tended to be the stuff that is mandated, you know, so OSHA or in Canada, WCB or um, the whatever your employment law is in various states, you know, mm-hmm. in this state, you can do this or you can't or whatever. Um, well, that's useful stuff. And yes, they need to know it, but it's not nowhere near adequate to, to actually build a workforce, build a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I did some uh, work with a leadership challenge, uh, Barry Posner and Jim Kuzes, and I, I believe they have some statistics on most people have, a, they're in a leadership role at 25, and the first time they ever get leadership training is about 42. Oh, that's awesome. I love that stat, Tracy. Yes. Yeah, so, wow. Yeah, there's a big gap. And my, my interest is what personally motivates them? Do they suddenly recognize, wow, I'm not effective? Like what, what is the turning point for them to make the change? Hmm. I don't know. And so I'm speculating I'm just thinking back on some of the people, individuals that I know. And I think there are two things that that might be driving that. And one is that they can't get the stuff done that they want to. So they have their own specific problem. Mm-hmm. So I need, I need some another tool, I need some help, whatever. But I think equally important is a context in which they are free to try something and not get it quite right the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've got a leader who wants to do well, but is in the middle of a blame culture, there's a real disincentive to do anything other than keep your head down. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about the terms or, or the world of training within industry and the two big pieces, job relations and job instructions. And okay. just um, we're all three of us and most of our listeners are in the problem solving process improvement world. How do those pieces intersect with process improvement? Great question. Uh, so the, let's start with job instruction. If you change a process, uh, so let's say you've got a setup that you're, you're needing to get shorter and you work out a way that that can happen. But if you run on two shifts or if you have people sick, you need to have people other than the core people step in. So you need to be able to train them to have it stable. Uh, And it would be better to have a training system that you knew could work and work quickly and not have 
flaws, you know, not have mistakes being made. Uh, and so job instruction gives you that, that kind of a tool. Uh, I think about a client of mine who uh, they were, they, they make the tags that researchers use to study fish. <laughs> so very niche, very particular, like there aren't a lot of companies in the world that make that. <laughs> so it's not like they can go out and hire anyone, but they have a very seasonal business. And so they have to ramp up and ramp down every year. Um, and so when they learned about job instruction, that gave them two things. It gave them a, a way to make sure that the new employees were doing things correctly. But what they discovered as they went through the process uh, is that when you define uh, the, how the work should be done, you actually discover you have to standardize it. And as you know, without a standard, there can be no improvement. So the job instruction drives the company to some standardization, not to be sort of blind about it, but to give you a base on which to grow. Uh, so that's how job instruction helps. The job relations, um, I don't know if you have had the opportunity to, to get to know Mark Warren at all. Uh, he's a guy in Athens, Georgia, uh, probably one of the smartest guys about TWI that there is in the world. He's done a huge amount of history work on this. But his, he makes the point that job relations is really a general problem-solving approach applied to people situations. He said, in some ways, it's harder to apply it to people than to things because people are so mushy, if you will, right? You know, we're soft creatures and we can't always tell from the outside what's going on on the inside. Um, but the process of getting the facts, which is step one, often leads you to process issues that you didn't realize were creating personal performance problems. So for example, um, there was uh, a guy who was um, making mistakes in the way he cut steel for a particular business. And it would show up late enough in the process that he was generating about $50,000 in scrap a year. So the, the natural approach was to say, well, this guy doesn't have it, right? Off with his head kind of thing. Uh, and, and with job relations, the supervisor went in, had a long conversation and then watched the process very carefully only to discover that this guy who was a good tradesman couldn't use a calculator correctly. So fix that problem in about five minutes and a $50,000 a year mistake went away. Um, and, uh, but, but it only happened because the supervisor went in trying to understand the problem and what it really was rather than assuming that it was either the process or the person. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. Yes, <laughs> thank you so much. <clears throat> so I, I wanted to ask you a question about supervisors. And the one of the challenges I hear supervisors wrestling with, um, and sometimes managers too, is this, this um, tug of war between getting the work done and developing people, mm -hmm. right? So I really want to develop this person, but I don't have time for that. Just do it this way. <laughs> so yeah. what, 
what percent of the time, maybe this is, you know, I, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on that and, and how you handle that. And I'd love to know if you have a percentage of time you think leaders or supervisors should be spending growing people versus dictating <laughs> what people should be doing. Any thoughts around those? Yeah. You're asking me to step into a landmine, a, a, a minefield there, step, Tracy. Step right in. Step right yeah. in, Hugh. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, well, let me tell you about a recent plant I was involved in designing. Okay. So uh, the question, we were trying to figure out what the cycle time needed to be in the plant for it to reach its target volume. And in order to do that, we had to make some assumptions about the available production time. So, and, and uh, this client is awesome. I mean, they're, they're doing this really neat product from a little town in uh, coastal BC and they export around the world. Um, we worked backwards from an eight hour day and there was some cleanup time and there was some general meeting time and allowed for allowance for bathroom breaks and stuff like that. It kind of took off half an hour a day. And then we said, what portion of the, of the allowable of that remaining time are we going to devote to the improvements and the rushes, the, all the unscheduled stuff. And we wound up at about an hour. So out of the eight hours, that's 12 and a half percent, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't that that's a hard, gonna be a hard and fast number or that it is now, mm -hmm. but it's the flex time that means that if they have a rush order from an important customer who's just sort of going nuts, they can respond to it if they need to. But if they don't have that, then it's time they can work on their processes. Mm -hmm. And so they treat it as flex time. Mm -hmm. um, I love it. Well done, um, Hugh. I mean, yeah. Tracy asked a potential stumper and you gave her a percentage, but go, go ahead. You were, you were about to say something. No, I was just well, going to say, I think that percentage is absolutely achievable, right? Like I think, and again, obviously it varies and, you know, depending on what people have, as you say, but I think a good, if you had to say that was a general rule of thumb, that to me is, seems totally acceptable. Um, so I don't know. What were you going to say, Elizabeth? No, I wanted, I, Hugh had something else to say. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Hugh. Oh, well, I was just going to say that, you know, the, the thing is, once you get into that virtuous cycle of doing the improvement, it really starts to pay huge dividends. And it doesn't take, takes remarkably little time to start giving you that payback. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as things get better. And I think about, uh, so let me tell you a story about a guy. So he was the, 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 the team leader in a welding shop and he had a bunch of pretty good welders, but one of them was a talker. You know the sort, right? There doesn't matter what they're doing, they're chatting and any excuse, they'll walk away from their workstation to go and talk to somebody about something apparently important. And so he was trying to figure out how he's going to deal with this. And he just, he'd been through the job relations. And he got this, he understood that he needed to find some data that was useful. And he had an order show up that was big enough that he could divide it in two and he gave it to two of the people on his team. Start of the day, here they are, 
have a good day. So by noon, one of the guys had finished the work. The talker, of course, had not. <laughs> and so this guy went over to the, the talker and said, so how far through the work are you? Well, I'm about halfway. So this other guy, call him Tommy. Tommy, you're a better welder than him, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, well, so how come he's finished for already? I don't know. So how many times did you come and talk to me this, this morning? I don't know, three or four. And, and, and then my supervisor friend said, I was counting. It was 12. <laughs> now, how long does it, how, how much time does it take you when you come over here? And he just walked the guy through the calculation, right? Until the guy realized that between 12 trips at 10 minutes a piece, he'd chewed up two full production hours away from his workplace. And the kicker was the supervisor said, so were there any of those questions that you asked me that you didn't know the answer to? And the guy kind of hung his head and said, no. I knew the answers to all of them. That is so wonderful. That feels like an Aesop's fable. Oh, I know. It's just brilliant. And but, also, go ahead. So, so the, the turnaround is that on a dime, that guy realized for the first time what he was doing, and it stopped. And the guy's production went up by 50 to 60%. Overnight. That's brilliant. So you get that kind of improvement, and all of a sudden, spending an hour a day seems like a pretty good investment. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I don't know why, but my this is reminding me my nephew works in a uh, carpentry shop at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And at one point, his boss called him hands in pockets, he said, because <laughs> he's also a talker. And when he's okay. talking, his hands are in his pockets and he's going, he's like, hey, hands in pockets. We need some stuff done over here. But I think that nickname spurred him to uh, maybe cut down some of the talking. But your method, I believe, is more targeted. And uh, what you just described is, is brilliant, a brilliant walkthrough of exactly what is involved in time and motion. Yeah. Um, Hugh, this is just rich and it's fascinating and it feels like your examples, each one of them is just this fantastic learning opportunity and tying together a lot of concepts and tools and techniques and worlds that we're all in, in different levels of activity. So this has been just a phenomenal uh, conversation. And uh, I, I know we could keep going, uh, but we're not allowed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have yes. to pull us to a close. But Tracy, do you have any last uh, questions for Hugh? Gosh, I, you know, I have, uh, I'm working with a client right now. And, you know, I'm thinking of you, Hugh, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you had mentioned that TWI comes in handy you're finding that a lot of people are implementing it with um, when they have, uh, a, you know, they have to hire seasonal staff. I'm in a situation where there's a lot of turnover, mm -hmm. a lot of turnover and they, the, the, the training that they're doing is just not fast enough. It's, you know, people aren't getting trained. The supervisors aren't getting trained and I'm thinking of you. So I don't know, maybe we could work together soon. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome, Tracy. I would so look forward to that. It's certainly a wonderful, uh, uh, a wonderful way to apply the apply it. I mean, when I was running that railing company, you know, we would go from thirty five in the winter to hundred plus every summer and back down to thirty five, and so we had to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it works. Yeah, marvelously. 
And of course, uh, I we, always think about our little trip to Zingerman's, right, Elizabeth, where oh, they yeah. brought 400, they went from 100 to 400 employees in, at Christmas time. Woo. Yeah. And back down. Yeah. So they yeah. worked the training right into the interview process. Um, yeah. it, your book clearly fills an incredibly vital niche that this is just a screaming problem. And uh, although people are squishy um, when you have six foot five members of the team <laughs> about to waltz over to uh, deal with something old school. Uh, it's, it's not as squishy, no. uh, but thank you so much. Uh, great work. Wonderful pulling uh, what you have together. This is, uh, this is great. It's been such yeah. a fun conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you. Absolutely. To the cafe. Yeah. Stay tuned for information about our September 9th webinar with Sonia Singh. I love Sonia. And she is a leadership and high performance coach. She teaches leaders to solve problems faster and build their emotional intelligence, also known as EQ. And in our webinar or her webinar, she's going to be talking about achieving mastery over your influence. I can't wait. Neither can I. That's going to be a great one. And Tune in for next month's podcast episode where we interview Dr. Subiha Mumtaz, who teaches leadership to MBA students at the Australian University of Wollongong in Dubai. She's a professor, and one of her personal missions is to inspire other women to become leaders. Can't wait to talk to her, too. And there's still room for you to join our next Lean Six Sigma Leadership Workshop offered through UC San Diego coming up in October. Class starts October 5th and goes for 12 weeks. We'll provide a link to that on our website. Phenomenal course. Come join us. We love summer, but fall means Halloween is coming in less than two months. The best holiday of all we're lucky to have your company here at the Just In Time Cafe. It's always better with all of you. We hope you enjoyed your jolt of lean caffeine.